Good morning, church. Let us pray. Father, we come to you this morning as our covenant God and our Lord, and we, we thank you for bringing us into fellowship with you through the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the privilege of calling you Father. We thank you for the privilege of knowing you. We thank you for the privilege of worshiping you together this morning. And now we thank you for the privilege of opening your word We thank you for the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of us, who helps us to understand that word, and we pray that that he would do that this morning, that he would minister to us, that he would help us to understand the things that we read, and that he would help us to apply them rightly. Father, we are in a covenant with you, the new covenant, and in that covenant there are obligations that we would live in light of the life that you have given us in Christ. We, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and, and that we would love them. That as we live, leave this place, that we would purpose to live in covenant faithfulness. We need your help in all of this. And we ask for it with, with great confidence because of the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus 18. This morning is going to be a bit of a different kind of message in that we're doing something of an overview of the next three chapters, 18 through 20. And so we'll be looking at several places in these three chapters. I'd like to begin by having you stand with me and we'll read 18 verses 1 through 5. Chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. You may be seated. I'd like to begin this morning by just asking you, if, if you are married, if you would raise your hand. Keep, keep them lifted. Now just everybody look around the room. We've got, we got two faces back there smiling really big. A couple of newlyweds. Look at them. They're so happy to be married. We're all happy to be married, aren't we? Those of us who are married. Yeah. A lot of us are married. Now, now, the rest of us have been to weddings, right? We've all been to weddings. And praise God, I've, I've had the privilege of, of officiating a number of weddings over the years. Our, our culture may miss the significance of what's happening at a wedding. But we of all people should not miss the significance of what takes place at a wedding. That man and that woman, they're entering a covenant, a binding lifelong agreement before God. They're making promises that that will shape how they live as long as they both shall live. And the guests at that wedding, and most of us have been guests at a wedding, the guests at that wedding are not merely spectators, 
but rather they are witnesses to the vows that the man and the woman are making. And by their presence, those, those witnesses are testifying, we have heard these promises and we will keep accountable, these two, to, to keep those promises. By entering the marriage, the man and the woman, they willingly, they joyfully obligate themselves to a particular way of living for life. And for the rest of, of, of life, as long as they both live, then for them to say, that's my wife or that's my husband, that communicates a, an understood set of commitments that the two of them have with one another. So go to the nearest nursing home and say to that elderly woman, hey, why, why are you nursing that man? in his suffering, rather than that one over there. And she likely will simply say, well, he's my husband. And when she says that, she is doing more than just making a statement of identification. She is evoking promises that she made decades ago that govern her relationship with that man. She promised to care for him in sickness and in health, and no other man in sickness and in health, as long as they both shall live. Ask any married man here in this room, why, why is it that you provide for that particular woman and, and none of these other women in the room? And he likely will say, well, she's my wife. And he is making more than a statement of her identity or his identity. He's evoking promises that he made. Why is it that you have babies just with one another? Why the same last name? Why a shared bank account just with that person? Why all the exclusivity? We're married. We are in a covenant. And our lives have been shaped by the vows that we have made. Here in Leviticus, while the first half of Leviticus has dealt largely with the ceremonial aspects of Israel's worship of God, the second half of Leviticus, chapters 17 through 27, largely outline what everyday life should look like for the people, how they should live in a relationship with Yahweh. And here in chapters 18 through 20 is a tight little bundle of what we, what we really think of when we think of the law of Moses. You know, we read things like, do this and don't do that. Some, some may think that the law of Moses... It's just acres and acres of moral laws. There actually are relatively few of those kinds of laws in the scope of the, the, the whole of the, the, the Pentateuch. But, but here in chapters 18 through 20, we have a concentration of them. And we might wonder, why these laws? Specifically, why God's laws? Why these particular laws? Why, why not follow the laws of these other gods? Why not follow the laws of these other peoples? Why exclusively allegiance to God in terms of lifestyle and obedience? And the Lord does something very helpful here in these chapters. He doesn't just give the laws, but rather He frames them within material, helping the people understand why. This is not just a bare do it because I said so. But God at length explains these laws. Do this because we belong to one another. I am your God. And you are my people. We are in a covenant with one another. And this morning we're going to cover just that frame. Just, just how God has framed these laws. So that when we look at the laws themselves, we'll understand them in the appropriate perspective, that these are not just do's and don'ts, but they speak to vows made within the context of a relationship. So we're going to glean four truths this morning about these vows, about obedience. And we'll find that all of it relates to one's relationship with God. And first of all, we find that obedience expresses covenant faithfulness. Obedience expresses covenant faithfulness. So we've just read verses 1 through 5, and, and you notice there that those verses are dense with instruction 
and grounding. The what and the why. So let's think first of all about the what. What is the what? Don't do what the nations do. According to the works of the Egyptians, don't live. And according to the the, the works of the Canaanites, don't live. And and if you want to know what some of those things are, what, what exactly is it that the Egyptians did? And what exactly is it that the Canaanites did? Well, just scan through chapters 18 through 20. Feel free to do that even now. You can just scan through there. And what you'll find is that those, that those nations, the Egyptians, the Canaanites, well, they did things like having relations with their close relatives and with animals and offering their children to idols and a host of other things. And there is an in antiquity record of those nations actually doing those things. And God is saying, don't do those things, but follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. We know what the word rules means because we use that word all the time. We don't use the word statutes very often. And it's helpful for us to know exactly what a statute refers to. Essentially, a statute is a boundary line. As in, don't cross this. And and when that word is used for a law, it indicates the givenness of a law. This is a given. This This is established as right. Live this way. And so... All of that is the what of the whole section of chapters 18 through 20. This is what God says. Do what He says and not what the the nations around you say. Now, what is the why? He repeats it like the refrain of a song throughout the rest of Leviticus. And He gives it to us three times just in these five verses. I am Yahweh your God. I am Yahweh your God. I am Yahweh. And again, that is more than just a statement of identity. And we know that because of where that originates. The very first time that we read these words is in Exodus chapter 6, where God explains to Moses his covenant intention for the people of Israel. He says, look, I've chosen, I've chosen you as a people. You're going to be different than all the other nations of, of the world. We find that phrase again used, God saying these very words again in Exodus chapter 20. As, as God is laying out the stipulations of this covenant, this marriage that He is entering with the people of Israel. So when God says, I am Yahweh your God, these aren't new words here in Leviticus chapter 18. These are words that He said before, and He's reminding Moses, reminding the people of these coven- this covenant that He's already made with them. This is a reminder of a covenant relationship. God chose the Israelites Out of all the other people on the planet, He rescued them from slavery. They've entered a covenant with Him. And that relationship is the grounds for the commands that follow. Obedience to these laws is the loving response to redemption and fellowship with God. So, the people of Israel, as they obey these laws, they are not creating a covenant. Their obedience is not leading to a covenant but rather their obedience reflects faithfulness to a covenant that they have already entered. It's very much like a marriage. You enter a marriage by making vows, and then you keep those vows which demonstrate faithfulness to a marriage that you have already entered. So God says here, don't follow them. Follow me. I'm your God. Be faithful to me. I'm yours, and you are mine. Second, obedience reflects the holiness of God. Obedience reflects the holiness of God. Turn with me, if you would, to the, to the end of this section, chapter 20, verse 24. 2024. Leviticus 20, 24. There we read those words again. The Lord says, I am the Lord your God. Who has separated you from the peoples? So we've got that same expression again, the expression of the covenant relationship, but it gives more detail. I've set you apart. Now continuing in verse 25, you you shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. 
You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. Now, let's, let's think through how this works. We, we could think of this in, in three logical steps, okay? And the first step is this. First of all, God is holy. He says, I am holy in verse 26. And we've talked in past messages that the fundamental meaning of that word holy is set-apartness or distinctness. It's going to be expressed morally, but the basic idea is to be set apart. I'm different, God says. I'm set apart from my creation. So God is holy. That's the first logical step. Second, He says, I separated you from the peoples. That's verse 24. And then in verse 26, he says, I've separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. And those, those first two logical steps, they're connected. I'm set apart. I'm holy. So I've set you apart. I've designated you to be holy. All right. God is holy. He set his people apart to be holy. The third logical step is this. You shall set apart the clean from the unclean. And that third logical step carries a couple of ideas within it. First of all, you are to live as a people set apart. Your set-apartness is to be visible and expressed in your everyday lives. We've talked about this in recent weeks. We talked about it last week as, as we were thinking through how, how the people being set apart at, unto God, they're being holy. It's going to be reflected even in the things that they eat. But a second idea is here that you, people, are going to be imaging me. See, I distinguish between the clean and the unclean in that I separated you from the nations and now you are going to image me by doing that with your animals and your food and with other things. And all that God says in these chapters, 18 through 20, is about God's people being set apart from the nations and He builds into these laws pictures of them doing that very thing. So now turn back to chapter 19, verse 19. Chapter 19, verse 19. There's a few laws here that cause us to scratch our heads perhaps, but they make sense in light of what we've just talked about. That is, they're pictures of the people doing what God does. Leviticus 19, 19. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed. You shall not wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. Now, unlike the other laws in chapters 18 through 20, there is nothing inherently wrong with doing these kinds of things in 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 verse 19 of chapter 19. Unlike the other laws in chapters 18 through 20, there's nothing inherently wrong here. All right? So why does God command these things? Don't let your, cat, your, 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 your cattle interbreed and don't mix your, your fabrics. Why, why does God say those kinds of things? Why does He say don't do that? Because it pictures the Israelites being set apart from the nations. Do not mix with the nations. Do not take what they say and try to combine it in some way with what I say. Don't take their worship and combine it with the worship that I've prescribed for you. Be set apart. Be holy. Follow me. Don't image them. Image me. I am Yahweh your God. The pressure has never been greater than it is now to look to the world to define our moral norms, particularly in the area of sexuality. And, and while we must strive to be winsome and, and loving in our expression of truth, we also must not allow the world either to define what is morally acceptable or what is loving to man and honoring to God. We must not allow the world to define what is normal, just, just as, as God says here. It, it's, it, it's not okay to have relations with a close relative. It's not okay to have relations with an animal. It's not okay to have relations with with someone of the same sex. It, It doesn't matter what the world says on these things. Do not mix your fabrics together. Do not allow your animals to interbreed. What that is saying is, don't mix what God says with what the world says. 
You be holy. You be set apart. We also must not allow the world to define what is loving to man or, or what is honoring to God. For example, the world says that to characterize virtually any sexual activity or desire as inherently wrong is unloving to man. Well, it is not up to the world to, to make that determination. God's own character determines what is loving. It is unloving to man to give him no boundaries regarding what does and does not reflect the character of God. And it is dishonoring to God to minimize those boundaries. And so we must be holy as God is holy. We must reflect His character and not the character of the world. As God has said here, I am holy, I am set apart, I have set you apart, therefore you must set apart, you must make a distinction. Because God has said all of these things in these chapters, it should not be surprising at all that God's people throughout the centuries would find themselves at odds with the nations regarding the propriety and personal implementation of God's laws. That shouldn't surprise us at all. Such tension may not be comfortable to us, but the solution is not to mix our fabrics or to allow our animals to interbreed. That is not the solution. But rather, it is to, with, with, with great confidence, humility, and devotion, to follow God alone, to reflect His holiness. It is by God's grace that we walk in obedience And in that obedience, we are reflecting His holy character. God says, I am Yahweh, your God. And so we are bound to reflect His character in our obedience. Third, obedience leads to blessedness. Obedience leads to blessedness. Now let's let's flip back to our Opening passage, chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. Verse 5 specifically. Look with me at 18.5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. If a person does them, That is, if if a person obeys these rules and statutes, he shall live by them. And what does that mean? It's really important that we keep the context in mind. I've been saying like a broken record for a few months now that Leviticus, Leviticus turns our eyes toward the central reality of human existence, which is that man was created for fellowship with God. Man was created to abide with God. And God has His people, Israel, at this point in the storyline, He has them on the front end of a journey to the promised land where they will live as His people. In the immediate context, that's what it means to live. To live is to exist long term in the blessings of covenant fellowship with God. Now, if you're taking notes, you might write down Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 19 and 20. Deuteronomy 30, 19 and 20. I'll read it to you right now. Here Moses writes, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice and holding fast to Him, for He is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. Now, we could spend a lot of time there. We don't have, we don't have time. In, in, in what sense does obeying these laws mean that the people will live by them? Well, keeping the law, in the most immediate sense, keeping the law, prevents the people from defiling the land. And defiling the land would mean their expulsion from the land, which would be death to them. Okay? Now, we're still, in, we're still in Leviticus 18. Scan down to the end of Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18.24. Leviticus 
we read this. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. And by any of these things, he means the intervening laws there in chapter in chapter 18, mainly laws against sexual immorality. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these, the nations I'm driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. So let's pause right there for just a moment. This again is preceded by laws against sexual immorality. The Canaanites have committed all of those abominations, and on that basis, the land is vomiting them out. Their sin has made the land sick. So sick that it's puking them out. Alright? Verse 26. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the person who does them shall be cut off from among their people. So, keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. And after giving the rest of the laws in the section, he continues with that idea. Skip down to to chapter 20, verse 22. So we're going again to the end of, of the section. Chapter 20, verse 22. He writes, You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you. For they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. So God is giving Israel the land that vomited out the Canaanites. And if we were to take the time to turn over to Deuteronomy 7, we would find Moses being very clear with the people. Look, God isn't giving you the land because you're righteous. You're not. You've got a long, you've got a long history of not being righteous. He's giving you the land, among other reasons, because He's punishing the wickedness of the Canaanites. And in Deuteronomy, again, he exhorts them to keep the law so as not to pollute the land so that they too will not be vomited out of the land. And so in the immediate context, it's in that sense that the man who does these statutes and rules will live by them. He'll remain in the land. He'll remain in fellowship with God. And fellowship with God is life. Now we'll take time later as we progress through Leviticus, we'll get to, to chapter 26 and we'll see the blessings that will come in the land with Yahweh when the people obey. And the principle that is taught there is that obedience leads to blessedness. That is, it leads, it leads to blessings and happiness. And this is not just an Old, Old Testament concept. It's a New Testament con- concept. We may not like that concept, that, that obedience leads to blessedness. We may not like that idea because some theological circles have mangled it into a prosperity gospel and we may think that it's just inherently contradictory to the gospel itself. But if we deny that concept, if we deny the concept that obedience leads to blessedness, we have a serious Bible problem on our hands. Because the Bible, and especially the New Testament, teaches it over and over and over. Obedience leads to blessedness. That is not the same thing as saying obedience leads to salvation, but obedience leads to blessedness. Let me just give you a smattering of texts from the New Testament teaching that idea. First of all, I won't read them all, but the Beatitudes teach that idea. The Beatitudes are filled with this idea that obedience leads to blessedness or happiness. Matthew twenty four forty six: Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so Doing when He comes. So obeying when He comes. John 13, 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Acts chapter 20, verse 35. In all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how He Himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. James 1, 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, 
For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. James 1.25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Revelation 22.7, and behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. That's just a few. We we could keep going for quite a while here. The New Testament, the Old Testament, the entire Word of God teaches that obedience leads to blessedness. Now, we all know that, that there are instances in life where doing the right thing will lead to difficulty. But broadly, obedience leads to blessedness. Obedience leads to joy. Do you want to make your life hard? Do you want to know misery? I mean, do you want to know true misery? Just ignore the direction of God. Exhibit A, ancient Israel. And, and when, what might the testimony of Israel be regarding all of this? Regarding all of the things that we've seen in, in, in Leviticus 18 through 20 this morning. They might say to us, hey, we, we were able to nail all of that stuff in Leviticus chapters 1 through 16. We, we could do the sacrifices to a T. But we could not control ourselves sexually. And and we couldn't stay away from false gods. And we couldn't do the right thing by our neighbors. We could handle all the ritual, the first half of Leviticus, but we couldn't manage life, the second half of of Leviticus. And And so we polluted the land and we were vomited out. We were unfaithful to our covenant God. We didn't keep the covenant. Going back to Leviticus 18.5, they might say, we couldn't obey them and so live by them. And their testimony would then tee up for us our fourth truth this morning, which is obedience is empowered by redemption in and fellowship with Christ. Obedience is empowered by redemption in and fellowship with Christ. Now, by the time we get to the New Testament, it seems that this saying in Leviticus 18.5, which again was, if a person does them, he shall live by them. By the time we get to the New Testament, that came to be understood in terms of eternal life. And there's a sense in which, yes, don't disobey, and you'll never be separated from Him. The problem is that all people do sin, and all people have been separated from God in Adam. So the theoretically possible is never realized. The Old Covenant had a great, huge problem. It didn't provide a sufficient sacrifice to cover sin, and it didn't provide a a new heart to empower obedience. The the law was quite open about this, actually. Deuteronomy is open about the people's need for circumcised hearts. We we, we think about circumcision as a a strictly, perhaps, outward manifestation, but, but Deuteronomy... And we'll actually see this later in Leviticus. Circumcision, true circumcision is of the heart. And Deuteronomy tells the people, look, you need circumcised hearts. And in Deuteronomy 29.4, Moses writes, To this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand, or eyes to see, or ears to hear. In other words, Moses is forecasting to the people, you're not going to be able to keep the law. Because you have a heart problem. And Moses goes on in that chapter to predict their expulsion from the land. You are going to pollute the land. The land is going to vomit you out. But, blessedly, he then also predicts God circumcising the people's hearts. Which I suggest is a prediction of a new and better covenant. A covenant with a better sacrifice and a covenant that changes hearts. Now, Let's turn over to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. This new covenant comes through the blood of Jesus Christ, who is a better sacrifice than the sacrifices of the old covenant. In fact, those sacrifices of the old covenant, they all picture Jesus And by their inadequacy, indicate the need for a better sacrifice, which is Jesus. 
In Romans chapter 10, Paul contrasts that old covenant with the new covenant. We want to pick up in verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So you hear that? You hear Leviticus 18.5 there? He's quoting Leviticus 18.5. And he calls that idea the righteousness based on law. Moving on in verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, Paul is doing something intriguing here, especially in verses 10, I'm sorry, verses 6 and 7. And this is why I would encourage you to read the book of Deuteronomy, particularly Deuteronomy 30. Where he writes there in verse 6, Do not say in your heart, He's taking those words from Deuteronomy 9. It comes from Deuteronomy 9, and the context of Deuteronomy 9 is significant. That's a context where the people are being warned not to assume that their entering the land is due to their own righteousness. I mentioned that a moment ago. Moses is very clear to them. Look, it's not because you're righteous that you're entering the land. It's because the Canaanites are terrible. All right? So just by saying, do not say in your heart, Paul is bringing up that concept. Look, don't think it's because of your righteousness, your righteousness that you enter the land. That's Deuteronomy 9. That's where the first part of Paul's quotation comes from. The rest of the quotation comes from Deuteronomy 30. And it's not so much a quotation as it is a Christological paraphrase by which Paul teaches this idea. Righteousness is due to God's work alone. He is the one who sent Jesus to the earth and who raised Him from the dead. And so none of the merit needed for our salvation is based on anything that we do. But rather, we trust in Christ and what Christ has done. And by faith in Him, we live. By faith in Him, we enter this new covenant with God. Jesus reconciles us to God through His righteous life and atoning death ratified by His resurrection. Now Paul explains all of this, and and we might perhaps expect Paul then to say, look, because, because Christ has fulfilled the law on our behalf, He obeyed everything, and His righteousness is then credited to our account. We might expect Paul to say, because of that, because Jesus obeyed perfectly for us, there's no need for us to obey. We might expect Him to say that. But does he write that? Not at all. In fact, as we look at the whole New Testament, with all the emphasis on life through faith in Christ in the New Covenant, there is no diminishing of the emphasis on the need for obedience. Case in point, let's turn over to Romans chapter 12. Just a couple of chapters later, as Paul is continuing to make his case for the Gospel. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. The word therefore means he's continuing his line of thought. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, I may be crazy, but that sounds a lot like the juxtaposition of the Canaanites versus God's will in Leviticus 18 through 20. Remember, back in Leviticus 18 through 20, he said, Don't follow them, follow me. You're not in a covenant with them, you're in a covenant with me. Now, why would Paul talk that way? Because we are in a covenant, we're in the new covenant. We're in a new covenant, and clearly here in, in Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul indicates that obedience is the appropriate response to this new covenant. 
And likewise, he calls us to obedience because obedience reflects God's holiness. We find this all over the place in the New Testament. One, one place is Ephesians 5.1 where Paul writes, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. We are to reflect the, 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 the image of God as, as His beloved children in the New Covenant. Very similar to the Old Covenant. A major difference though, and this is key, this is what should, should cause us not to despair as they did in the, in the Old Covenant. A major difference in the two covenants, aside from the glorious atonement of, of Christ, is this empowering work of the Spirit of Christ who dwells inside of us. Unlike those in the Old Covenant, the believer in Jesus Christ can obey because of the work of Christ in the believer. The believer can obey because the believer lives. So you might write down this couple of verses, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, which reads this way. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Did you hear that? Obey because God works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. This is, this is unlike the Old Covenant. In the New Covenant, you, you have the Spirit of God working in you to empower you to obey. So a way to distinguish the two covenants might be this. The Old Covenant says, He who obeys will live. The New Covenant says, He who lives by faith in Christ will obey. As we close, let me give you just a few ways that we might run with this. Just a few practical ways to run with this. First of all, gratitude for the covenant. Gratitude for the covenant. I would suggest to you that an appropriate way to live in gratitude for the covenant of Jesus Christ, the new covenant in Jesus Christ, is, is to express it verbally on the daily in prayer. It's to say this to the Lord. Thank you for granting me to be a partaker of the new covenant in Christ. Look at the masses out in the world. The vast majority of them are not partakers of, of the new covenant. But certainly we want them to be. We want, we want those numbers to swell to the increased, increasing praise of, of our great God. But as of right now, they are not, and we are. We should thank God that we are partakers of that covenant. Thank you that you are my God through Christ and that I am among your people. Second, heartfelt, spirit-empowered, Striving for obedience as an expression of covenant faithfulness. Let me say that again. Heartfelt, spirit-empowered, striving for obedience as an expression of covenant faithfulness. And, and each of those phrases is important. Let's first of all, think very briefly about striving. Let us not, as those who are in a covenant relationship with God, let us not lounge but let us strive. The New Testament is filled with this kind of language. Strive for obedience. Another important phrase is, is heartfelt. That is, this is moved by love. And this is, this is where it is so helpful to be thinking daily about the gospel all the time. To be thinking about what our, our God has done for us through Christ. So that as we're striving for obedience, it's not fueled strictly by just grit and will, but it's fueled by love for this Savior and fueled by His love for us. And where that love wanes, pray for more. That's the kind of, that's the kind of prayer He delights to answer. Pray for more. Lord, help me to love You more. Just, just imagine if... Just imagine that you're in his shoes. Imagine that one of your kids comes to you and says, would you help me love you more? You say, no, get out of here, kid. No. That's, God, God's like, yes, I'm on that one. Pray that every day. Third, 
we're doing we're doing this to express covenant faithfulness. We're still in the second. We're still in the second application. I'm still talking about that. So so heartfelt, spirit empowered, striving for obedience as an expression of covenant faithfulness. Let's talk about that concept of expressing covenant faithfulness. That is, we're striving for obedience, understanding that 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 we're not doing this to secure a relationship. Christ secured it. It's done. He bled and died. He, he rose from the dead. It's done. There's nothing left for us to do. That, that, that thing has been nailed down. We obey as an expression of covenant faithfulness. We're in the marriage. Now we're, we're, we're walking in the vows that govern that relationship. We're expressing love for the one with whom we're already in a covenant. A third and final suggestion for how we might run with this. I would call this enthusiastic spiritual monogamy. Enthusiastic spiritual monogamy. We're going to be challenged in coming weeks to, as, as we work through chapters 18 through 20 to think in exclusive terms about God as our sole object of worship. Now, we, we certainly, as, as we do this, we, we don't want to hate the world. Certainly not. We want to have great compassion for the world. But we do need to get our heads on straight as it pertains to our allegiance and who we worship. Christ is our Lord. He calls the shots. He says which way is up and which way is down. Not the world. Not the world. And we need to take a look at things like our views on political issues and how we get to those views. How we reason our way to those views. Our views on current events and how we reason our way to those views. Our priorities in time management. Our loves and interests. And ask of all of these things, how much of these things come to me through the agenda of the, of the Canaanites and how much of these things come to me through the agenda of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I'm in a covenant with Christ. I am not in a covenant with the Canaanites. I must follow Christ, be faithful to Him, reflect His holiness, walk in His blessedness. And so I want to be evaluating all of these things, the way that I think, the way that I behave online, a host of things, and think in terms of enthusiastic, spiritual monogamy, because I'm in a covenant with, with one God, and so I'm going to walk in faithfulness with Him. He is our God. We are His people. Let us obey Him. Now, it certainly could be the, the case that among us this morning, there is someone who is not in that new covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. That is, you have never turned from your sin, submitted to Jesus Christ as your Lord, trusted Him alone to save you from the wrath to come. If that is you, please understand that as things stand this morning, you carry your own sin with you into eternity. And nothing could be worse for you than that. Because at the end of this life, there is waiting for you a righteous judge who will do the right thing. You can count on that. The truth is this, that that same, that same judge is also a Savior who spilt His blood for sinners. And today is the day of salvation. He reaches out to sinners like you and says, lay down that sin, turn toward me, trust in me, and I will save you. Call me Lord and King. And you'll spend eternity with me. If you'll do that today, you'll be saved. Now, you may have questions about that. You may have never heard anything like that before. And if that's the case, we would be thrilled to talk to you more about that. We're happy to answer any questions you have. I would be happy to talk to you. We have other elders here. Pastor John is the one who opened the, the, the service for us this morning. He's In fact, he's dressed exactly like me, except he's got that magnificent beard. He'd be happy to talk to you too. 
You're actually surrounded by people who could talk to you. Just talk to someone before you leave today. Do not leave this place carrying your own sin. Let's pray. Father, we, when, when we take the time to think through these things, we are overwhelmed that you would, at such great cost, bring ones who are so undeserving into such a magnificent covenant with you. We have done nothing but dishonor you and earn your eternal displeasure. And yet you gave the most precious thing that you had, your own son, to ransom us from your own wrath. And these things are so amazing that at times we find it almost too good to be true. And yet, because your word testifies to it so repeatedly and adamantly that we do believe it's true. And those of us who have repented and trusted in Christ, we have, we have found it to be true in that we are now alive and transformed by this truth. We thank you for it. We ask for your forgiveness that we, we tend to go hours and sometimes days, weeks without meditating on these things. But today we pray for your help that we would be a people who are zealous to live lives of obedience, that is, lives that reflect covenant faithfulness to you, our God. And we thank you that because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, among other many great blessings, we have His Holy Spirit living inside of us, empowering us to do that very thing. We also pray now for those among us who, who may not know the Lord Jesus, who may not have turned from their sin and, and trusted in Him to be saved. And we pray for your gracious and cr crushing conviction upon them, that you would grant them to see this truth, that Jesus is their only hope, that they would see His sufficiency, His wonder, his beauty, His worth, and so eagerly relinquish their sin, relinquish their self-determination, and give their lives to Him in faith, and so live eternally with you. We pray that, that you would do that for them. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.